Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It's a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Jack Marquardt. He's one of the preeminent experts on the history of the Shroud. We'll be talking about a handful of topics and look forward to the discussion. But before we get started, I wanted to tell a short story. And that is uh, last week, I was just in uh, Washington, DC at the Museum of the Bible. And there they have just launched a really nice, great exhibit on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, in particular, they also have a linen reproduction of the shroud in full life size. So it's 14 feet long by four feet high. It has all of the blood stains, all of the imagery. It maybe even has some wax stains uh, or replicas of wax stains and replica of maybe even wine stains. It has then the fire uh, marks on it and it has even the poker holes uh, that you'd see in the uh, Prey manuscript. As part of the launch, it was also uh, nice to hear Russ Brialt, Andrew Casper, Cheryl White, and Barry Schwartz, as well as Father Spitzer. And then lastly, even there was a, a short uh, uh, talk by the Papal Nuncio to the United States, Archbishop Christophe Pierre. Each of them spoke on separate topics, ranging from the 1978 STERP study uh, all the way to the image formation and the mechanism as to or a possible mechanism and theory as to how that image got on the art on the on this on the shroud and then lastly which was kind of interesting is that uh, that the art that the shroud image is a piece of art and uh, when you hear that you go wow wait a minute that doesn't make it authentic well yes it does because it's not a piece of art from the hand of man. It's a piece of art from the hand of God. And so when you hear that, uh, you really can see uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a studier of the shroud, how God put that image on there when Jesus was uh, in that moment of resurrection. If you get a chance, definitely plan a trip to Washington, D.C. and visit the shroud exhibit at the Museum of the Bible before July. Uh, it's, uh, the exhibit closes in July. It might get extended, but definitely if you can get over there by, uh, by July of this year. So as I mentioned today, we'll be speaking with uh, Jack Marquardt and he has done some phenomenal research on the Shroud of Turin. Hi Guy, how are you doing? Thank you. And thank you so much, Jack, for uh, being here. And uh, let me introduce him. Uh, Jack majored in history and languages at Rutgers University and received his uh, Juris Doctor degree, cum laude, from the Albany Law School, where he had served as an editor and author of the Law Review. He has studied the Shroud of Turin for more than 35 years, written many articles on the subject, and presented a number of scholarly papers to international symposia held in France, Italy, and the United States. He recently published a book, The Hidden History of the Shroud of Turin, it details the first 14 centuries of the relic's history and explains the attempts which were made throughout this period to conceal its existence and its provenance. Go to Amazon and search on Jack Marquardt or the book title, The Hidden History of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, 
And we'll also put a link on our site to this uh, fascinating book. So Jack, thank you for being here. So glad to have you and uh, let's get started. So why don't you tell us uh, what your backstory is and how you got involved with the Shroud of Turin? Well, I didn't know too much about the Shroud of Turin prior to uh, January 1st of 1996, uh, 1986. Uh, at that time, I attended uh, church services and uh, it was the first day of the year and they uh, distributed a calendar that was uh, published by uh, the Holy Shroud Guild, which was centered in New York State. Um, and when I got home, I looked through the calendar and they had a uh, photograph of the shroud for every month in different uh, formats and positions, some negative, some positive, some featuring the, the uh, face and the body wounds, etc. And uh, I was just kind of blown away by that. Like I know of other, a lot of other people got interested in the shroud in the same way. They saw the image in a bookstore on a newspaper and so that's kind of what transpired with me. Um, very quickly after that, I uh, got a hold of the Holy Shroud Guild. I actually obtained some slides from them that I later uh, used for presentations that I made on the shroud. Uh, and then I found uh, other sources like Joe Marino. He was putting out a newsletter in those days, which he's still doing now and through email. Uh, and I really hooked up with a woman by the name of Dorothy Crispino. She was uh, about 70 years old at the time and was an old hand at Shroud. She knew all the priests from the earlier history, Father Rinaldi and Father Otterbein and all these people. And we became correspondents. We wrote back and forth quite often. Uh, she knew my history, uh, my, my interest was history. And uh, I think it was her that suggested that uh, I take a look at Ian Wilson's book, which he had published in 1978. And I read that through. Uh, I thought it was a great book. Uh, I was most interested in the section of it that dealt with the history. And when I uh, read through the history, uh, I kind of looked at it as being in three parts. There was a part in the early history of the Shroud in which he said that it had gone to Odessa and it was hidden in a wall for 500 years. And I never really quite bought on to that. Uh, there was a, a section in which he identified it with uh, an icon called the image of Odessa and the Mandillion. I thought he made a very strong case for that at that time. And then there was uh, the period of time after the shroud left Constantinople and he was attributing it to the uh, custody of the Knights Templar. And I also felt that that was um, a bit of a strain at that time. So with Dorothy's assistance and that her encouragement, I started doing my own legal, my own uh, historical research over the course of the next 10 years. And I began to publish papers having to do with the uh, early era of the Shroud in which I proposed that it had gone from Jerusalem to Antioch, and I went on from there. And uh, in the after effect of the uh, Constantinople stay, I thought that there was um, interesting evidence of perhaps it being uh, in Southern France with a group called the Albigensians or the Cathars. Uh, and I wrote a paper uh, entitled, Was the Shroud in Languedoc at the, during the Missing Years? 
Uh, and I put a question mark after that because I really didn't know I was putting it out there with the evidence that was there. Uh, from there, I uh, then for perhaps the next 10 years, uh, probably wrote as many papers as anyone. I was actually publishing a new paper almost every year and presenting them at international conferences. Um, and uh, I always worked around uh, Wilson's uh, theory that the shroud was the Mandelian uh, and the image of Odessa uh, until about 2009. Uh, another uh, scholar of the shroud, a fellow by the name of Mark Guskin, who is really a, like a linguist who lives in Spain, he's an Englishman, uh, he came out with a purely academic, academic treatise on the image of Odessa. Uh, and when I read that through, and particularly some of the citations that he made to academic um, works, and then referenced the academic works that he had uh, cited, uh, I had less and less confidence that the shroud had been the uh, image of Odessa and Mandelian. Um, and then I uh, received or purchased a copy of Ian Wilson's third shroud book, which he published in 2010. And I was practically shocked to see that he was going back on what uh, his position had been, which made a ton of sense, and that is that the shroud image, the entire image, had remained hidden until about the 11th century. That's why it was not spoken of. And in his book in 2010, he opened the possibility that the full image had been known to a Nestorian bishop in the 7th century and might have even been the uh, cloth that Bishop Arkoff had seen um, uh, demonstrated and, and uh, worshipped in Jerusalem, which means that um, if that was true, that a lot of people would have known of the full length image of the shroud, and it would not explain why the Mandelian uh, had been described in 944 as just the facial image. And so that was what caused me to then start a new round of research, which I did from 2009 to 2014, and I presented the results uh, in St. Louis at a conference in 2014 and proposed that the shroud was during this same period uh, an icon known as the image of God incarnate. As some people refer to it as the image of Camilliano. And that is an image that historically uh, was uh, in this, uh, Constantinople from at least the year 574 remained in there at least through the age of iconoclasm in 726, um, and uh, was the very first image that was ever identified as an image not made by human hands of Jesus. Uh, since that time, uh, I've uh, moved my research on to something I hadn't covered in the past, which is the history of the shroud at around the time of Geoffrey de Charnay, and went into uh, what I believed happened during the so-called missing years, how the shroud then got to Charnay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, so your book, uh, The Hidden History of the Shroud of Turin, uh, is very interesting because it handles those first 14 centuries, 1400 years. And it's really in the 14th century when 
there's kind of a written history or the beginnings of a written history on the shroud. And so then you can trace it from at the time in Leary, France, all the way down then to Chambéry and then to Turin and, and then the expositions and exhibitions where it was, uh, where it was put. And sure. it's that air, that time frame before that, that is really up in, up in the air, so to speak, as to what exactly happened. Um, I was in, influenced and inspired by Ian Wilson's The Blood in the Shroud, and I actually use that as the basis for my book. But uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, so tell us uh, um, uh, why you picked then that, those 1400 years and, and maybe give us a little bit about uh, the actual writing of, the, of, this, of, of your book, The Hidden History of the Shroud of Turin. Well, uh, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was that my writings and research were scattered over a number of sources uh, over the course of 20 years. If you wanted to find out what I thought, a uh, very large uh, part of that was found in uh, proceedings, what they call proceedings of these international symposia that I took part of. Some of them were published, some of them were not, uh, or you would have to find some of them in the uh, British Shroud of Turin newsletter. Um, and uh, I think that sometimes I wrote for my own interest. So sometimes I was writing about ancient times and sometimes I was writing about late medieval times. And uh, I had a number of people who had told me that uh, they would have liked to see this all as one continuous narrative uh, in one place. And I began thinking that maybe some of my writings and research would be lost over time. Uh, if it remained in this state. So uh, I began writing this book around the time of the uh, PASCO conference in 2017, at which time I presented three papers, uh, all relating to Geoffrey Charnay and those times. Uh, and then um, I was further encouraged about two years into it by the fact that um, one of the chief skeptics of the Shroud's authenticity and the historian by the name of uh, Andrea Nicolotti uh, published a book in English in 2019. He had published it four, four years before that. And uh, a large part of his theme was that there was uh, no uh, history of the Torrin Shroud before Lyrae and no mention of it. And, and uh, given that my research had found a great number of mentions of the shroud, but not as the shroud per se, uh, I thought that I would try to uh, formulate a book uh, in which um, I went through the various eras of the shroud's existence and not only show what had happened to it, where it was, what its movements were, but also explain why it is unreasonable for uh, skeptics or anyone else to have expected that the shroud would have been specifically mentioned like that um, during these various periods of time, given their ownership and other historical circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, I mean, there's a couple of things that I, I really liked about your book. The, the one is, um, I really like that you know, here you have a piece of proof, well, evidence that the shroud was here at this time, therefore, all of these other things can't be true. And the one I always remember is uh, is that uh, you know the 1204 was the the fourth crusade, 
but in the Bucolian Palace, the shroud was uh, apparently there through 1207. So that, that then sort of uh, takes a lot of the steam out of different arguments that the, the shroud left after uh, 1204 uh, and was, or was taken or whatever. But um, one thing I did wanna ask you about is, uh, and one of the things I really felt was, was very well done was I liked the, the reasoning behind why the shroud was hidden. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that from uh, you know, Jewish uh, persecution, the Christian persecution, all the way up through history. There's a couple of different time periods that really uh, make it so that the, the owner of the shroud or the keeper of the shroud really wants to keep that hidden. Right. Uh, the first so-called era runs from um, the discovery of the shroud in the tomb in about 33 uh, up to the year 362. And I call this the era of iconoclasm uh, and persecution. Um, it's curious to me that the, the skeptics, when they say there's no mention of the shroud, they don't, in honesty, simply say, but of course, one wouldn't expect the shroud to be mentioned during the period of time of Christian persecution. But they don't say that. It just fits their narrative that the shroud never existed. Um, and I try to show in the book uh, that uh, the apostles and the early church was bound by a commandment of Jesus to keep the uh, pearls of the faith uh, secret from enemies. And that uh, scholars, this is not syndonologists making this up, but uh, valid uh, scholars uh, have identified a Christian custom or practice called the discipline of the secret. And although it's a little bit complicated in its simplest form, it required that all references that were being made to uh, high valued faith items be done uh, in sort of a code language or in uh, using words that would not be able to identify it. So, of course, the Christians uh, did not want the shroud to be discovered. And so when they wrote in their uh, church writings and uh, on inscriptions, public inscriptions, they called the shroud other things than the shroud. Um, this was a especially important in the earliest days of the shroud because the, um, the Jews um, were rigid iconoclasts uh, because uh, they were forbidden to um, give veneration of idols uh, and images. And so had the apostles or the church disclosed the existence of the shroud while it was in Judea, uh, it's almost certain that it would have been seized and destroyed. It was also a, an impure object under Jewish uh, ritual law. Uh, and as early as Paul writing in about 55 um, CE, uh, when he wrote a epistle to the Galatians uh, in chapter three, um, verse one, uh, he made mention specifically of a clear portrait of Jesus crucified that had been shown to the Galatians in order to obtain their conversion. Uh, this has been mentioned kind of uh, more recently in uh, Shroud, at Shroud presentations, 
but everyone I think has been somewhat confused by it because they can't make a connection between Paul and the Shroud of Turin. And there probably is no connection between Paul and the Shroud of Turin, but they're making the assumption that Paul is talking about his own conversion efforts in Galatia, where it is almost certain that uh, Peter was um, evangelizing there at the same time. And Peter, uh, according to an Eastern church tradition, uh, is the apostle who took the shroud uh, from the sepulcher. And then it says, very strangely, he used to arrange the shroud of Jesus on his head. And so uh, what I picture happening is that he would, that Peter would place the shroud, fold it in some fashion on the top of his head, and then while preaching, and in order to make his point, would somehow unbind it, and the uh, ventral image would drape down the front of him and the, the dorsal image, the back of him, and that this is how he got people to pay attention to what he was saying and to obtain conversions. And uh, as I try to make the, the point in the book, um, what does clear portrait of Jesus crucified mean if it doesn't mean an image of Jesus uh, such as we see on the shroud? And although um, uh, it has not been discussed for uh, many centuries, it's mainly because of John Calvin, who was uh, an anti-relic um, churchman. Um, he's made up a, um, an interpretation or exegesis for that particular uh, uh, verse in which he says that Paul was only describing how vivid his own preaching was. Paul was so vivid with his preaching that they were, the Galatians were imagining in their minds Jesus uh, crucified. Yet the verse says, what is wrong with you, you, you Galatians? You have seen with your uh, own eyes the image of Jesus Christ. And I, I could go through, and my book does go through, many other examples of that throughout the history. But the question that I ask is, uh, of skeptics, that's there. If that's not the Shroud of Turin, then what is it? And of those who still believe that the shroud was in Odessa at that time, hidden in a wall, then that, uh, how do they answer the question of what that image would be? Right, right, and um, and I agree with that, and I also like your point about, uh, you know, the Jews being the, the original, I don't know, maybe not the original, but certainly iconoclasts. Uh, just yesterday uh, at one of my uh, Bible study groups, we were talking through the, the Ten Commandments, and right there is, uh, you know, you can't you can't have false idols, and uh, and so then the Jews and certainly Paul and Peter and at that time and all the apostles were actually Jews. They weren't they weren't Christians, so to speak. They were proto Christians, and if they were Jews, you know, they were most likely still following all of the 613 different rules, and one of those is don't use uh, icons. Now, of course, your point, though, about Peter potentially having the, the image of the shroud come down during when he's talking, um, you know, okay, so maybe he, he bent the rules a little bit there, but nevertheless, uh, that, I think, is one of the clear proofs that a lot of the anti-shroudists don't really see is that, you know, you have these rules that they're kind of trying to follow, 
And, and to your point, it goes all the way up to John Calvin, where he then clears out everything out of the church and wants white walls and no pews and nothing. And, uh, and iconoclasm is, uh, is throughout history, at least for the, you know, the first 1400 years. So uh, yeah, very, uh, very good points on that. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's important to remember that Peter, uh, of all the apostles, uh, actually had to, uh, in order to bring Christianity forward, had to reject a number of the principles and traditions of Judaism. And he did that almost from the first sermon that he preached on Pentecost. I mean, you can't say that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and that you can obtain forgiveness through him and his name and still be considered an Orthodox Jew. So uh, I don't think that he would have had any reluctance to take a cloth which otherwise might be forbidden by the Torah and purity laws and uh, ignore the great commission that Jesus had given him and not use that in order to obtain conversions of other Gentiles and other nations. Yeah, I can't imagine, uh, you know, Peter, you know, standing in front of, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands or whatever the num numbers are. And, and when he shows an image with an actual, basically a photograph, that that has to be an incredibly impressive to the audience and uh, and what a way to to drive the conversion of Christians. So makes yeah, a lot there's of sense. something that I call the um, miracle conversion um, paradigm, and that is that if you read through uh, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, almost every miracle uh, or almost every conversion, rather, uh, comes about after the performance of a miracle. The precedent mm. was set by Jesus Himself. And um, so it's, it just seems to me that um, we, as Christians, uh, would like to believe it was simply Jesus' message that carried the day, because that's so persuasive for us. But back in those times, Jesus himself uh, was not reported to be making mass conversions through his message alone. There was something miraculous that was presented to the people to make them believe. And uh, once you get into the period where, the, where Acts is no longer recording miracles, what was it that caused so many Gentiles in uh, Anatolia and Greece uh, to come to the church? It certainly fits the narrative, I think, that something like the Turin Shroud showing an image of uh, Jesus, uh, unprecedented image of Jesus, um, could accomplish that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, well, anyway, let me let me move on a little bit further into the future. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that the the shroud is concealed either in the walls of Antioch or in the walls of Edessa, and that the gate over which it is, I think, has the same name. I think it's the gate of the cherubim. Yeah. And uh, now, and what you have in your book is that it's in the walls of uh, Antioch. Uh, and so, tell us about that. Okay, yeah, once you get past uh, the era of um, persecution, uh, the next era that I have is that the, the era of concealment within uh, the walls of Antioch. Um, the uh, Christians uh, got a great deal of toleration in the Roman Empire after Constantine and his sons, but uh, on the death of Constantine's last son, 
in 361, I believe it was, um, there was a the nephew uh, who was Julian the Apostate who began a persecution of the church and particularly in Antioch. And one of the things he did is he uh, attempted to seize the ecclesiastical treasures uh, of the cathedral that was in Antioch. And there are two church histories that say that when he did that, the uh, presbyter of that church, who happened to be an Arian Christian, a heretical Christian, as far as the Orthodox was concerned, uh, he hid the ecclesiastical treasures of the cathedral. And even though he was threatened with death, he would not disclose where he put it. And he was actually beheaded for refusing to make this disclosure. Now, you, to find out where he hid it, you almost have to go ahead 175 years when it's reported that a very awesome image of Jesus appeared in Antioch around the year 538. And that appears next in a district adjacent to a particular wall of Antioch. Uh, it's the southern wall of Antioch in which they have a gate called the Gate of the Cherubim. And uh, it's a gate in which they actually have cherubim that um, are modeled off of those that was, were at the Jerusalem temple who were put there by uh, General Titus in 70 uh, CE. Uh, in any event, uh, we then find that there are uh, stories concerning an image of Jesus having been placed in a wall, um, both um, in the 6th century and later in the uh, 10th century. And so it makes perfect sense that the shroud, that that's where the shroud remained for that period of time. And if that's so, then you wouldn't expect anyone to be talking about it, writing about it. It was probably forgotten after 20 or 30 years by the few people who knew about it at that time. Mm -hmm. So that kind of covers the, the second era of uh, the Shroud's historic existence in which it is either referenced by uh, various codes uh, or it's uh, not referenced at all. Yeah, and to your point as well about referencing it uh, through different codes, uh, you know, if you read Revelation, <laughs> You know, that's just filled with codes. So there's no reason why that wouldn't have been the case as well. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's uh, move a little bit forward as well. Uh, and now let's talk about <laughs> we're going through, we're going to go through 1400 years and 40 minutes. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, uh, the next era in your book um, was the uh, era of Byzantine deception and superstition. Yeah. Let me, uh, I'll try to try to keep this brief. Um, the book uh, shows um, evidence of the shroud being brought to Constantinople in about the year 540. Uh, and um, it, there is, in fact, about 30 years later, a, um, an image of Jesus called the image of God incarnate, which is uh, in Constantinople. It becomes uh, basically um, the model for uh, images of Jesus that are put on uh, Byzantine army labara, uh, which they, they wave. And uh, we, we get into this period of time where now the image of Jesus, as we generally accept it, uh, becomes uh, popular and becomes the standard. Um, and uh, it makes perfect sense that's because you've, if you look at these images, 
they were all created by a Byzantine emperor, or they were created in a Byzantine city, or they appear on Byzantine coins. And uh, strangely, um, it's been um, put out there that somehow the uh, people in Constantinople knew of the image being in Edessa, and they got all of that detail and they put it on uh, these images which they were creating. Whereas it makes far more sense if the image itself was right there in Constantinople, owned by the emperor in the royal collection for the artists of Byzantines to, to make those kind of images by directly looking at them in Constantinople. And this is particularly so with regard to images after 639, because that's when Odessa fell to the Muslims. So there wasn't the communication of ideas and people were not going back and forth for the next 400 years. In fact, the Byzantine emperor and the Muslim caliphates were at war for a, a large part of that time. Yeah, and I, there is one theory that uh, that the um, that the shroud was purchased from the Muslims and uh, and it was in Edessa. And then when the Muslims overtook the uh, the city of Edessa, then they, be, they came into possession of it. And then uh, one of the Byzantine emperors went and purchased it for a, a large sum of money. And, and I don't know, I just don't see that. Uh, I just don't see that happening. But well, that sounds like another one of those. Um theories that have no historical yeah. text to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, uh, and so, um, uh, and it does make sense that it is in uh, Constantinople, because just like you said, you have the coins and you have a lot of other images that come out. And then, of course, you have the, the disappearance of the coins, because then you have the iconoclast coming back and saying those things are, you know, causing bad luck and stuff like that. Right. So, and there's uh, one other thing. Um, it's a long period of time. There are many things to be discussed, but I'd like to uh, simply mention something that I call the Tarragona Manuscript. Yeah. Um, it's, it's written uh, and it, in about the year 1090 uh, in Constantinople by a visitor to Constantinople. The bottom line is it describes an image of Jesus being kept at the Bucolian Palace at that time. And... Um, for probably the purposes of their own narratives, others have tried to say that, well, that was just the Mandillion that was brought to um, uh, Constantinople from Odessa in 944, and which was really the shroud. However, they don't really focus on the entire uh, manuscript in which the author says there's a history to this um, particular cloth. It was in the city, in Constantinople, at the time that we had continuous earthquakes here. Uh, and after this period of continuous earthquakes, some emperor went, uh, basically prayed to God and had a vision sent to him that said, you're going to keep getting these calamities until you place this uh, image of Jesus on cloth in a box and lock it up. And... Um, the only period of time in which such continuous earthquakes took place were between the years 740 and 741, when the emperors were iconoclasts. And therefore, it's, it seems very clear that what happened to the Torin Shroud, uh, beginning in about the middle of the 8th century, is it was locked away in a box, and it was really never taken out of there for many, many centuries. It still was in the box as of 1090. And so I think that this kind of explains again why you would not find a lot of references to it, although the information that it was there 
uh, seems to have been at least known. There's something called the Latin tractate in which I don't know how the skeptics really deal with this, but uh, even Nicolotti admits that this tractate was written before the 11th century. And it is a tractate in which it references an image of Jesus' entire body on a linen cloth, um, which was being kept at one time in Odessa. And so without, their, without the shroud being in existence at that time, why would somebody write a tractate such as that? Right, right, right. And plus, it, it would have been written... Uh, because it was uh, such a valuable or such a venerated piece that that it was worthy of being written of. Nobody's going to write something about a you know some some ordinary cloth or some fraudulent cloth. They're going to write about a you know the the true cloth and uh, the true shroud and and because it is so valuable and and deserves uh, you know veneration. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, we're going to go. To, we're going to move on another couple hundred years. <laughs> We're speeding through centuries. As speeding speak. through, but uh, so now tell us about the uh, the missing years, the era of the missing years, and the okay. era of French deception. Because yeah. here I really enjoyed the story of simony and and things like that. So yeah. So uh, in any event, uh, the missing years have been a puzzle for a long time. There are at least twelve theories of where the shroud was between twelve oh four when it disappeared from Constantinople in 1355, when it was exhibited uh, in Lyrae. Uh, I have a, um, an appendix to my book, which describes all of those theories and what their uh, merits and uh, deficiencies are. But I think that uh, all of them really do not explain uh, why uh, when the missing years were over, Geoffrey de Charnay, who ends up with the cloth, why did he not just admit that he had the cloth? Why did his family not admit that he had the cloth? Why, if the church tolerated these public exhibitions of these relics, why didn't they talk about what the history was? So I think where it ties together is there is a number of, um, or there are a number of historical uh, texts which indicate that the shroud was not, did not disappear from Constantinople in 1204. And that's what kind of renders these uh, theories involving Akon Della Roche false. Um, that it remained in the treasury. Uh, it was basically not noticed because the history of the um, Latin Empire was turbulent during those years. And it was only in about 1238 with the Latin Empire on the verge of, of failing that uh, Emperor Baldwin II, who was the cousin of King Louis IX of France, um, began selling relics to Louis. And uh, it's my belief that this is when he inventoried his relics and he found out that he had the shroud and it appeared to be the most valuable of anything that he had. So he retained the ownership of that when he sold Louis the other relics. And then a crazy thing happened that a lot of people don't know about. Louis uh, or Baldwin in order to raise money to keep his emperor, empire intact he actually ransomed his son, mortgaged his son uh, to, in order to get money. And then he was not able to uh, redeem the son and he remained in imprisonment for about 13 years. And who ransomed him but Louis, when he came back from the Crusades, uh, he is the one that put up the ransom money uh, to release Philip, the son. And Philip immediately went into his service. So it appears that for Louis, for uh, 
Louis to do something like that, he must have received something in return. And in all likelihood, it was the one remaining relic which Baldwin had, and that would be the Turin Trail. Now, uh, that, that transaction, for reasons that I put forth in the book, constituted simony. It was a sin of purchasing and selling relics. And any king or ruler who might be convicted of that would lose his throne. The church was strictly in charge of all that. So I don't think Louis realized that it was a, an act of simony when he did this because he had acquired other relics under circumstances where there was an exception to that rule. But I think he was advised that uh, this was a, uh, an act of simony. And so he couldn't acknowledge his ownership of that or, or put it in the Saint-Chapelle like his other relics. And his closest friend was a, a fellow uh, who was um, Jean de Joinville, who had been with him through the Crusades, his closer, closest advisor. Uh, he lived in Champagne. And uh, I think he gave him the relic and the uh, Joinville family took care of it for the next 50 years. Uh, and Jean de, de Joinville's grandson is Geoffrey de Charnay. In other words, Joinville's daughter is Geoffrey's mother, which would explain how he obtained the shroud when all these other theories that say it was a gift, but they know, nobody knows who gave it to him or um, uh, he got it through an inheritance. Uh, you know, it just makes a whole lot of sense that uh, the greatest collector of Byzantine relics, uh, Louis IX would have acquired this relic and Geoffrey would have gotten it through Louis's acquisition of the relic and his gift of the relic to Geoffrey's grandfather. Now is uh, Louis IX as well, the acquirer or of the, uh, the crown of thorns? Yes. And isn't he also, didn't he have uh, uh, various uh, pieces from the true cross? Yes, uh, he actually received the crown of thorns and 22 other relics during the period of 1238 to 1242. And the way that he obtained them is that Baldwin would put them up as security for loans, not repay the loans, forfeit the loans to the lenders. But there was this period of redemption and Louis would come in and pay, repay the lenders and he would acquire uh, the relics in that way. And there was an exception to simony that if you rescued a relic, from a forfeiture like this, particularly to someone who might desecrate it, well, then you were a hero rather than a villain. And, uh, but that's not what happened when Louis acquired the um, Shroud of Turin. He didn't mm. rescue the Shroud from some uh, ill fate. He rescued Baldwin's son from mm. that fate. Yeah, and uh, I like the... Uh... I, I remember, I can't remember who told it to me, but when I was a young kid, there's, uh, uh, it, you know, there's, when you're doing your taxes and my dad was doing the taxes and maybe it was his accountant and he said, well, now we need to find a little loophole here. Yes. Yes, it was a, a loophole in the canon law. A loophole in the canon law. And that's, I think that's what he was doing. Yeah. So, uh, well, I would love to uh, talk further. Maybe uh, we'll do this again and we'll just focus on 100 years. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe if we could do it, do one era at a time. Exactly. Maybe exactly. Consider this an overview because we haven't even gotten to uh, uh, the uh, exhibitions of the Shroud and why yeah. uh, and how Jeffrey it kept it secret. But it would be daunting, uh, really, in a period of about 50 minutes. 
to try to cover so much material. Yeah, but I think yeah. I think it, it, you have the sense of it anyway. Well, and, and, and it's definitely, uh, you know, a good introduction and does allow us, you know, in the future to, uh, to drill a little deeper. Um, anyway, uh, so any other comments or thoughts uh, before we close out? Well, I just want to say that um, I really appreciate your having me on here with you. I, I think it shows a great deal of character on your part that you're about to publish a book that's based on a historical theory that uh, I don't agree with, and I'm propounding, you know, another historical theory, but I think it's well understood that, uh, you know, your book is there uh, in order to attract interest in the Turin Shroud and show how it might have moved uh, rather than it being, uh, you know, a historical book uh, per se. But uh, I think you're the exception to the rule that I've run into in my uh, experience in in studying the shroud that you have a, a very open mind and you're open to uh, what other people believe and and would uh, advocate. So, you know, kudos to you. I do appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you uh, very much. And, and you're right, I'm, uh, I'm sitting here and, you know, I have, a, I have a couple of different theories and they're not really my theories. I, you know, I, I, I borrowed them from others and then put a story around it. And, um, uh, you know, now that I've, I've read through your book, I'd say, well, you know, should I, you know, what should I do? But I think, you know, to your point, it is historical fiction. And, and right. who says Hollywood can't make things up? <laughs> so, right, right. Sometimes you have to add live. Exactly, exactly. Well, Jack, uh, thank you uh, so much for uh, being here and uh, talking about your book. I'll show the cover again. Uh, the, his, the Hidden History of the Shroud of Turin. If you're interested, uh, you can go out to Amazon and search on the title, or you can search on uh, Jack's name and you'll find it there. And I will also put a link to it on my website uh, when we post this video, uh, as well as when we uh, post the podcast. So thank you again. And uh, otherwise, uh, stay tuned for other videos in this series on the backstory of the Shroud of Turin. Please visit Guy Powell and sound. Uh, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Thank you so much, Jack. Okay, thank you, Guy. See you again.